This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is brought to you by our friends at the First There Foundation. On March 4th, 2002, John Chapman made the ultimate sacrifice for his nation while serving in Afghanistan. During an operation to retrieve fallen Navy SEAL Neil Roberts, Chapman, an Air Force combat controller, and a team of Navy SEALs came under fire. Chapman would get isolated from the group and have to fight until the very end. His sister Lori joins us to share his story, and quite frankly, her story. A Gold Star sister, Lori has carried what happened to her brother for over 20 years. And to be candid, there are parts of the story that are tough to hear, especially Lori's view on the other special operators that were with her brother, John, on that day. Simply, she has some strong feelings that you'll hear. And I know guys who are relatively close to the special operations team that she talks about, and I respect the hell out of those guys. But it is her story, and I think she deserves the platform to tell it. Personally, I've consulted with guys in the community that I know and trust, and I feel comfortable with a lot of the details that Lori shares with you. At the same time, I encourage you to read or learn more about the warriors of Operation Anaconda and Roberts Ridge and John Chapman, who at the time was the first airman to be awarded the Medal of Honor since Vietnam. John's final acts were captured on drone footage, which in and of itself is pretty incredible. Look, I can't speak to what happens in war. I don't know. I've never been. My hope is that this interview will provide Lori a place to share her brother's story, which she does. And it includes a lot about who he was as a man and his final acts of heroism. And so as we start this episode of Pick Up the Six, we do so in memory and honor of fallen Navy SEAL Neil Roberts and Air Force Combat Controller John Chapman. Hey guys, Brian Jodis back once again for an episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. And just to lean in, thanks again to our friends at the First There Foundation. We've been doing a series of these interviews, specifically talking about the Air Force's elite special operators known as combat controllers. I've absolutely loved this journey from when we got to know Eric to talking to guys like Dan Skidmore, uh, the combat controller, Connor Matthews. We've talked to folks like Johnny Fast. Tim Brown, who's OG, right? Early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and his journey into this. And today we're going to talk to Lori Longfritz, whose brother, John Chapman, Medal of Honor recipient, was killed in combat. And he was an Air Force combat controller. So I'm just so thankful to Eric uh, and the foundation for what they're doing, for the introductions they've been able to make to us. It feels like not a day goes by, Lori, where Eric's not sending me a text with somebody that says, you got to talk to this person. I said, Roger that. Let's do it. And so here we are. So Lori, just, just welcome and thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there are a lot of combat control stories out there. A lot of really badass guys who yeah. whose stories, you know, everyone should hear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that doesn't surprise me that Eric's doing that. <laughs> no doubt, uh, and he's he's keeping the legacy alive. There's a book over my shoulder up there called uh, "My Brother in Arms." That's written by my friend Thad Forrester, his brother Mark Forrester, part of mm-hmm. that elite club, and and like your brother, part of an even more elite uh, and honor club. Those guys that through their duty to our nation, paid that ultimate price, laid down their lives. And Lori, we got a chance just to chat a little bit before uh, you wrote an incredible book. It's called Alone at Dawn, Medal of Honor recipient John Chapman and the untold story of the world's deadliest special operations force. It's a New York Times bestseller. So we're going to hear his story. I want you to share John's story with us. But before we do that, you were telling me you were listening to episode 105 of Pick Up the Six podcast with Scott Deluzio. And Scott was deployed while his brother was deployed 
and Scott's brother was killed in combat. And those guys weren't very far from each other. When I can't it, even when it imagine right. how that went down. And that, you know, and, and it's like he said, when you, when you're in it or you're, you're, you, you almost have to put your grief aside to, to finish your, your mission. So no one else gets killed. You know, I can't even imagine what he went through. Yeah. That, oh, the horror of that. Incredibly unique. It's an incredibly unique story. Yeah, I think it was um, kind of like Tillman. Wasn't Tillman's brother nearby? Or there's, you know, there's, we've, there's a lot of stories of that, right? And you think back to, I mean, honestly, you think back to the days of like World War II, where like mm-hmm. generations of brothers would go off, sometimes four right. or five deep, right. to do that. So Scott's yeah. ability, guys, if you haven't listened to it, please go back. It's episode one hundred five. Scott Deluzio, go yeah. find that it surviving just, son is what the episode's called because that's his book, and so. And he, it just struck me because he was describing his brother. And I felt like he was describing my brother, like a lot of the um, traits and the things that just how they were um, was uh, it, it just reminded me of John. And then the, then come to find out that they grew up about 15 minutes from from where we did in Connecticut. Hold on one second. Sure. Yeah, she's got a pup runner. Right. That, that's, you told me you sent me a text on that and I got chicken skinned on that, right? Like, I was like, that's pretty incredible. Like, of all the things, one, to listen to that, to hear the story, to think of the similarities and to find out like, no, we grew up like 15, 20 minutes apart. Right. <laughs> what are the chances? Crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. That's, yeah. that's for well, sure. Well, I think, uh, what's his name? Levito. Levito was also, he was there in Hartford, I think. So that yeah. was about the same, same distance. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Well, Connecticut put out some pretty, pretty badass yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, guys that were ready in that moment after that fateful day on Tuesday, December or September the 11th, uh, 2001, you know, to step up and, and go into the fight. There's no doubt, you know, guys across the guys across the country. Right. But that feel across the Northeast, right, because it had happened. A lot of it happened up there. I think it, there was a poll for guys in that area to want to do something. We talked to uh, a guy last week, Matt Rendar, that was uh, same thing. Right. Grew up in Long Island. He's like, I got to go do something. Mm-hmm. And this guy stepped up to do it. All right. So we're going to talk about the fateful day where your brother laid down his life for our nation, ultimately receiving our nation's highest honor to be bestowed upon military warriors, that medal of honor. But tell right. us a little bit about John Chapman first. I, I just want to get to know him, right? What well, was, yeah, I was going to say, you know, before we get to that, I kind of like to just, yeah, you know, set the groundwork and sh- just to show that, um, you know, John didn't just you know, suddenly on that, on March 4th, 2002, become a, a team player. He, mm. he was that from the very beginning of like his life. Um, so there's a, there's a story of, um, that I got from a, a guy named uh, Bill Brooks. He was uh, new to our town in, in kindergarten. So they were first day of kindergarten and Billy says, well, I don't know. I must've said something that pissed Maureen Walsh off. And um, she punched me in the stomach and she, it, I guess he was, she was going to wind up to punch him again. And he's like, then out of nowhere, this, this kid who is also a five-year-old kindergartner stepped in between them and said, no, 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 we're not doing this. And um, it ended up being John, you know, what, what kindergartner knows to step in, mm-hmm. you know, most of the other kids would just be like, yeah, I'm not getting into this or laugh. Um, and that just forged a friendship between uh, John and Billy for, you know, until John died. Yeah. Years to come. Yeah. John changed Billy's life. Like he was extremely um, shy, like extremely shy. And John always pushed him, but beyond just beyond the limit. And um, now he's able to, he's a a chef and he can talk in front of hundreds of people or before he couldn't even talk to, you know, two people. So 
you know, John changed his life, but um, he's always been about team. He's on the soccer team. He was, he could have scored. He could have probably had the record for scoring, but his record was assists Hmm. because he wanted, he didn't care about, you know, the goal. He wanted the team to win. So, you know, and it's just every, you can just see steps throughout his life. Um, And I think there was one, a major one that was, we, we talked about in the book um, when John went to um, back to Lackland to start the pipeline, the combat control pipeline, um, they started, there were 120 that started that signed up for the class then showed up for the class, but they didn't start it right away. They did a lot of, um, like PT stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. just really grueling stuff. Yeah. Weed some of those guys of, out at the beginning. Exactly. So by the time out of 120, by the time they started, um, 75 remained. And then by the time graduation came, it was seven, five PJ, seven, seven. It's five PJs and two combat controllers. Wow. And the two were John and this guy named Joe Maynard. He and Joe met during that training Joe's from Tennessee, this good old boy. Um, and he, uh, they got in trouble for, they say nothing, the whole, the whole team, uh, the whole, uh, class. So they had to, they had this thing called the dips and they had a, a, a mud pit separate from it. So they all had to do 50 dips. Now a dip is they're like parallel bars mm-hmm. and you had to, when you're up, you had to have your arms straight. And then when you go down, you have to go down to your shoulders. So you had to do 50 of them. But then you had to stay up for a minute in between each one. Whoa. And so John and Joe were the only two that didn't fail for muscle failure or whatever reason. They're the only two that did not fail. You're looking the at at least ones, an hour of that, right? If they had to do 50 right? of them, holy cow. I can't even do one. Wow. But <laughs> he, um, so when they were, when they finished, the, the leadership of the, the, um, the, I don't know what you call them. The, I don't think it's a commander, but whoever mm-hmm. the trainer said, you know, Chapman and Maynard, you're off. You can, you can go take shower, do whatever. And Joe said, he started running for the, he started heading. Get out of here as fast as possible. John ran to the mud pit and his, uh, his name was Rodman. Rodman says, Chapman, what are you doing? And he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to the mud pit to join my team. Hmm. And he's like, no, you're dismissed. And John just stood there at, at, at right next to the mud pit. And uh, so someone in the mud pit threw, threw mud at him, slapped, you know, got mud in the face. And then Rodman just said, well, you're muddy now. You might as well join him. So, and then Joe said that was the first time that he realized that this wasn't about him, that it was about the team. Mm. And that's John's always been all about the team. Was he kind of predestined for the military? Or was there a time where he comes to family and says, this is what I want to do. It seems to me that it's not a major surprise if, and he when he makes that it. declaration, give it was something story. that he had thought about. And I guess he had talked with friends about and other friends are like, Oh hell no, I'm not doing that. So John tried a, a year of college at UConn university of Connecticut. Um, and he and some of his friends did whatever they could to, to lower their GPAs, you know, involving partying and whatnot. Um, so after a year he said, yeah, this isn't for me. I, I mm-hmm. don't want to do this. Excuse me. So then he took another year in town and worked for a man who had a car repair shop. Um, and, you know, even then he just, he just did things to perfection. And um, there was a, 
like they did a re, re uh, fender benders. They would fix them. Mm -hmm. And the guy, the owner says, John, you know, I want you to fix this, but I don't want you ordering new parts. I want you to fix it. So John fixed it. And then the guy came back and, he, and was mad at John and said, John, I told you, you had to fix it. He's like, I did. So he fixed it to the point where even this guy didn't realize that yeah. it wasn't a new part. So he always gave his best to everything he did. So after a year of that, he's like, yeah, I love working on cars, but this still isn't my path. So then he uh, joined the Air Force. Um, he he actually joined, he talked a friend into going joining with him, happened to be the Maureen, the girl who punched Billy's uh -huh. her brother. Oh, so, there you go. That's good. Yeah. So yeah. Well, small town, right? Like everybody stays oh, yeah. around each other. Like I think there was ten thousand people, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. When, when 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 Lori, when was this? Is this pre nine eleven time frame? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We were we're talking, you know, when we graduated, you know, John graduated high school in eighty three. So, okay. you know. We're dating, dating ourselves, but That's he, right. um, they went, he's tried communications and he was, you know, he went to Lowry Air Force Base and, um, um, he had promised my mom that he would try something safe, safe to begin with. Like she knew that there were some pretty dangerous jobs within the mm -hmm. Air Force, never heard of combat control. John had heard about it in basic, I guess. So yeah. he kind of kept this pamphlet in his drawer, you know as a like a wish um and then after i don't know a couple of years he just decided i can't do this anymore i didn't join the air force to sit behind a desk so he looked into cross training and he every time he made a decision even when he went into the air force he already made the decision he had already signed up or and yeah and then he talked to family and said so what do you think well because i've already done it you know and he did the same thing with combat control um you know, my mom said, yeah, you're right. You fulfilled your promise. And so he went in. Um, so he, he, found work, he found a workaround to get around having told mom he wasn't going to do anything too dangerous to go do one of the most, if not the most dangerous job seriously, in all seriously. of the Air Force. So. And, you know, and again, we knew nothing about combat control. We sure. You know, I kept calling. Well, it I tell Force. people I grew I grew up in an Air Force house. My dad flew fighter jets. I didn't know much about those guys yeah. until digging through this and that's just we were just so sort of fighter pilot focused in our household just what we grew up around i didn't know much about yeah what those dudes were doing and just how yeah. incredible that and we is. weren't in an air force or any military family so we had no idea right. and um and he never really told us you know what it was he we kind of had something he told us a little bit about some of the schools he had to go through in the pipeline um which is the hardest and longest pipeline in the special tactics world from what I understand. Um, so he arrived at back at Lackland for that training um, at Medina Annex, which is now John Chapman Annex, by the mm -hmm. way, um, in July of 89. So he started that pipeline then and um, never looked back. I mean, I, he struggled. There were, he had to redo a couple of things in the schooling, um, in the pipeline, but he made it. Um, I have a, I have a tattoo of his, um, his handwriting. He had written, he would, we would write letters back and forth back in the, you know, no texting days because we didn't have cell phones. Right. Um, so it says, dear sis, I finally see myself making it. And, um, and I keep that with me so that, you know, maybe, uh, inspiration for me to push myself because he had really had to push to get through it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no kidding. And I think it's 1% of the, I don't know if it's 1% of the Air Force or 1% of the military. I think it's Air Force is combat control. And then 1% of those, those guys go to the, the 24th Special Tactics. And he ended up making his way there. Yeah. Tim, Tim Brown told us a lot about that, that group and just the, the level in which that they trained and the work in which they had to do it. It is, uh, and Eric will correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not, it's real tip of the spear kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Right. And what those guys were asked to do. And even Tim, Tim gave us guy, if, if I, this, but I feel like every episode, I'm like, guys, go back and listen to this podcast. Go back, go back and look at Tim Brown. It was only a couple of weeks ago. We just released it mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Tim gives an incredible history lesson. Oh, nice. About so if, yeah, Lord, if you want to dig into just some of the history of where combat controllers even came from, right. How these groups sure. sort of stood up the work they were doing in the early days with Delta, Oh, and with Tim Carney talks, and, yeah, yeah, and just Tim talks, yes, exactly. And Tim talks a lot about that stuff. I mean, these are the guys that jumped into Panama in '89, and those you know, are the guys you need to talk to. <laughs> the guys, they're awesome. And Tim Brown is yeah. an amazing human being who humbly we barely even scratched the, stir- the surface on the stuff that those dudes were asked to do in those early days. And they set the stage for what then becomes this new theater, this global war on terror post 9 11, right? And that's where John ends up in Afghanistan. and 2002. So take us into that deployment. And, and if you don't mind, so, you've had to do a lot of research and studying and you've read a lot yeah. of documents as you're writing this book again, alone at dawn. So take us into March 4th, 2002, as, as much as you want to, Lori. Well, prior, a little bit prior to that, he, um, so he was a combat controller for all that time. He graduated in nine, 1990 and, you know, he missed um, the, what is it? The fault? What is that? Desert Storm or sure. the, what was the other one? Yeah, you'd have Desert Storm, Desert Shield, 93. You get into sort of Mogadishu, yeah. Black Hawk yeah. Down-ish so kind he, of territory. That's what's happening throughout these, yeah. you know, kind of couple of years. So he missed the Desert Shield um, because of he, uh, a freak accident with a horse. <laughs> he ruptured his spleen. Oh, geez. And sidelined. And wow. that war was so short that by the time he yeah. was not sidelined, it was already yeah. done. Yeah. Um. So, and by then he, you know, he got married in 92. He had kids in 96 and 98. So by the time, you know, he, he started thinking, okay, we're in peacetime. I'm really never going to be able to test my metal. Um, I mean, I don't really know his, his actual thinking on the whole mm-hmm. thing, but he just decided that he wanted to be home more for the, for the kids and uh, for more of a nine to five, if you will. It, I mean, it wasn't, but um, so he switched from combat control. He was still in the 24th to the survey team and the survey team, you know, it's still, it's not like these guys that you see out on the highway, you know, they're going into all kinds Mm of, you know, third world countries and um, surveying land buildings, whatever. So, and, and create gathering information so that in the future, should something happen, they already have information on that area and those buildings. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, without you know um without uh what's the word i'm trying to think i mean risk danger. right inherent danger right All oh the sure potential. yeah was a, from what i understand there was a time when he had his car just loaded full of camera equipment and whatever and and guys came with guns and said you know what are you doing here and he just lied the crap out of you know whatever he, he just said yeah, whatever say he what you gotta say to get out of it because if they had seen what was in his car yeah mm-hmm we would have been having a probably a different conversation, mm-hmm. but um, so he was in survey. So when you're in survey, you know, you, you kind of let your 
your combat control skills diminish a little. And then 9-11 happened. And um, he basically stood on the commander's desk and said, put me in the fight. I'm going, I, I yeah. want back in. Um, so he had to really um, gear up and and get back in shape. And um, he wasn't like out of shape, but he had to really, I mean, you're carrying heavier equipment than anyone else. You've got the radios back then. I think the rucks were 50 to 70 pounds heavier than everyone else's yeah. because of the radios and yeah. stuff. Um, so he had to quickly gear up. So he went to um, Virginia Beach to, to, to train with the SEAL team. And, uh, which he did, I think for several months, I know we went to visit him one time, but, um, he, he didn't have to go when he did, Mm -hmm. but he said, no, I, I trained with these guys. They know me, they under, you know, we work well together. So I, I have to go with them. I want to go with them. So a couple of things happened where he wasn't going to go. And then he ended up going with them. Um, I think in December, no, January of 2002. Um, and then once they were there, you know, they went on different missions and when March 3rd came around, there was, there was this whole thing that was going to happen in the Sheikot Valley and all these combat controllers and whomever were supposed to be, you know, placed in different mountains. They're over 10,000 feet each mountain so that they could call in airstrikes when this, shit hit the fan the next day. And um, the SEAL team that was there um, with John, I, I say he drew the short straw when he got, when I normally don't say the, their names anymore because after working with um, Eric and his foundation and um, I, I carried, uh, I'm kind of going off subject here, but I carried anger and mm. pain and, and, um, kind of a desire for revenge in some way um, for almost 20 years. And so I, now I, they mean nothing to me. They're, they're like a booger that I flicked. So I don't usually say their names, but I'll say them now just for you. Um, So when slab, they split up their team and slab said, I'll take John. So that's why I say John Dora drew the short straw and and went with slab. Um, When they decided to, the, the, the SEALs figured that they were, if they didn't get in now, they were going to not be in the fight at all. So that was the push to get in it. Um, the mission was offered to a different SEAL team leader, and he said, no, I'm not doing that. And so <clears throat> then it went to Slab, and Slab was, he tried to push it 24 hours because they had mechanical issues and things like that. But um, ultimately he said, sure, let's go do it. And, you know, John as a team person, he's like, you, you go, I'm going. So, um, they went after having, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you heard of Pete Labor and, and, um, he was a Delta commander. He was there for several weeks beforehand. So, and he gave them Intel that the mountain that you want to go on is teaming with enemy fighters. And the SEALs were like, nope, we're not listening to you. We're going. And then because, you know, normally you you land at the base of the mountain and work your way up so they don't know you're coming. Well, because of mechanical error issues and things like that, they decided, you know, time's running out. We need to just land on top of the mountain. So that's what they did. 
and they started to land. And I, you know, this is just hugely paraphrased and uh, condensed, but they went up to the mountain and as soon as they crested the ridge, they could see that there were, you know, indicators that there were people up there and they were going to land anyway. And one of the seals was not tethered in because they were, I think they're about 20 feet off the ground and they were just going to land and drop them and leave. Um, well, they took RPGs, um, the helicopter, the pilot not, you know, had to veer off. And in the process, um, Neil Roberts fell out and hit the ground Whoa. and was left there. The pilot didn't know he lost someone. Plus the helicopter was great, gravely damaged. He, he was actually able to basically control crash about, you know, many meters, never, uh, miles away at the base of another mountain. Um, John got out and create and set up comms so that they weren't attacked from on the ground called in another helicopter. Well, by the time the other helicopter came in, Slab and the rest of the guys were like, we, we need to go up, back up there right now with this other helicopter. And the uh, pilot said, I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm doing that. So instead they brought, they gathered everybody up and um, uh, went back to Gardez and tried to get another helicopter. And then, then there in the process, there's, several hours of wait time. And um, John was told by Slab, you know, you stay here. And John's like, no, I am part of your team. I'm going. So again, he could have just not gone, but John, there's no, he, there was, there was just no way he was not going to go. So when they went back hours later, um, you know, they're losing darkness and um, you could, I'm sure I know the enemy could hear him coming. So they, they landed amid, you know, gunfire, RPGs, uh, that type of thing. They had a disc machine gun firing at them. And so, you know, the pilot was hit. There was all these, they couldn't just take right back off. Anyway, normally the combat controller is one of the last guys off. And then they have to go to wherever to set up their comms. Well, in this, because it was kind of all ad hoc and, um, and then it hit the fan, Slab went off first, and as soon as he went went out, he he post hold and fell into the snow. The snow was like thigh deep, hmm. um, and John was right after him. So John stepped over him. They were taking fire from two positions, two gun nests, and John went after the first or the closer one, and I mean just directly at them, and killed the two guys that were in there, and then started heading up more uphill towards the second bunker. Um, to try to take out those guys. And, um, you know, in the meantime, Slab had, you know, got himself up, brushed himself off, whatever. And then the other team members went off in two directions, two sets of two. Um, and Slab went to uh, join John. John was engaging the second there are different stories and different um, uh, thoughts about what really happened, but John was taking on the second bunker and at some point he was hit and he went down and Slab said that, you know, he checked him and that he was gone and the other 
four guys came and converged and said, where's Chappie? He's dead. So as far as they were, they knew John was dead. So they're in the fight for their lives trying to, you know, what do we do now? Um, so they tried to slide off the mountain, go down because a couple of them had gotten injured and, and uh, shot. And um, so they kind of went over the side of the mountain, um, but weren't that far away. They're kind of like stuck there, I think. And um, at some point, maybe 15, 20 minutes, maybe not even, John came too and um, found himself alone with like, where's my team? And maybe he thought they were dead too. I don't know. I mean, you can't, you don't know, you can't know what mm -hmm. he was thinking, but he did know that he was surrounded by enemy fighters and they were all intent on killing him. Well, at first they didn't know he was still, that he was alive. They didn't know he was there. Um, but once they did, you know, he became a target. He actually did take over that bunker, killed those guys, and used the bunker to help. He basically fought for an hour. Um, they they did RPGs at him. They hand-to-hand um, -hand combat. He he killed a couple guys hand-to-hand. -hand. Um, and then, so Slab and the guys are down below. And, and this is what, you know, kind of gets me. Um they heard, they even admit that they heard the gunfire. So they know, they know the difference of weapons, what the sound of what they sound like. So they had to know that there was an American up there above them fighting. And they think they had to also know that it was John as they later on, they claimed that it was Neil. He, Neil was doing all this, this hero stuff, but it, you know, there wasn't any way that anyway. So slab started calling in airstrikes right where John was. So he, not only is he getting, fired at, you know, people trying to sneak up on him. He's already injured and shot and, you know, has shrapnel and whatever. Now they're, and now they're having American bombs dropping all around him. So I can't even imagine what exactly he was, you know, thinking at the time, like, what the heck? He did try to call for help. There was a, another controller on another mountain. They were all other mountain tops. They were like, what is going on over there? Nobody knew he, they were there. Because the SEAL team leadership in Bagram decided that at the beginning of this, this mission that they were going to have a separate separate comms line of communication. So only the SEAL team and them. So no one else could hear them. No one else knew they were there. But um, Jay Hill was on another mountaintop and he heard John calling, um, you know, and whenever... Jay would answer, John never answered back. So he he said, I know John, I knew his call sign, I know his voice, that was John. So John was trying to connect with someone and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Um, so um, at that point, Slab had called in for a QRF to come in to pick them up. And John, I, I know John heard the helicopter coming up as everyone on the mountain did. And he also knew that they needed his spot from which to, to fire. It was the best place to fire the RPGs from. So he was defending that position to try to give the helicopter a chance. You know, two, two helicopters had already suffered gravely pre previous to that. And, um, John did everything he could to help protect those guys and to, to, to save the helicopter, you know, to give them a chance. Um, 
at one point he I, he was already he, I think he had I don't even remember now eight or nine gunshot wounds and and shrapnel wounds and everything and he finally was running out of um, ammunition and he left the cover of the bunker to um, take out the dish machine gun that was firing at him or them and when he did that he lay prone to shoot them and and that's when he took the the final couple rounds that it went in through the side so that it just went directly into his heart. Mm. Um, and at that point he died. Lori, how, so yeah. So first of all, just wow. I mean, it's incredible and I'm so sorry. I mean, I it's sort of my only reaction here, right? Yeah. I'm really yeah. sorry. It's, it's tough. Um, how do you guys, how do you piece, how is all that piece together? Right. How do you find all this out? Right. Oh. How much of this becomes public? Right. Like, so our listeners are gonna be like, wow, that's a really heavy story that has some pretty incredible, not implications. Like oh, that was a shit show up there. Sure. Right. And so that's tough. It's tough to hear that. The story you yeah. just told was really, it's hard to listen to. I'm sure it's, I, I can't imagine what it's like for you to have to tell it. Yeah. And the thing is, how do you find all this out? How do you piece it together? How can, right? Like, cause a lot of this is, it's gotta be public, right? To know these well, level of detail or. Initially when we were all told, um, initially it was told that they got to the mountain. Um, they took gunfire. John killed two guys and then he was killed. End of story. That was it. That's all we were told. And we were kind of like, just something. Like, yeah. no, I kind of feel like there's more to this story. And my mother asked the commander, did he die immediately? I mean, did he suffer? Did he, because we all had this feeling that mm, there's more to the story than that. And, you know, we were reassured that, no, he died right away. And, and uh, it was slowly, we started hearing more and more things, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is this March 4th, 20, uh, 21 years. So coming up and um, he, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Okay. Yeah. So we, we just would start hearing little things from um, within the, especially the combat control community and then maybe the PJ community, they were pissed. Like they knew there was more to it. Um, especially the guys who were there, they're like, yeah, no. Um, so yeah, we just started he hearing more and more things and, you know, then they would confirm, yeah, well this, and, you know, slab tried to tell a story about how he had checked John and, and then more information would come out and then he'd change his story to fit that information. And then the, the video came out, you know, initially nobody could watch it. It wasn't public, you know, you couldn't see it. Um, but once now you can see it, there's a YouTube video that um, um, shows it and you can see that John was never checked, mm. you know? So, you know, all these things start coming out that, you know, things didn't, happened the way they said it did and and yeah. i've said before like i understand that there is there truly is something called fog of war um but i also don't believe that it applies to every situation i don't think mm. it's a go-to to just hey we don't want to talk about that so let's just call it fog of war mm. and that's how i feel like that's you know that's what they're using for you know oops, we for oh yeah that yeah. didn't happen that way and Things just happened, things that were said later on, especially when John was, when his Air Force Cross was um, 
being considered for an upgrade to the Medal of Honor. Um, the things that they started saying then was it was just it was very hurtful. Not yeah, why does that God, why does that have to be the case? You know, you sort of like scratch your head. And, right. I, and I know I know and I know and I know that's why for 20 years you've carried just that's a lot of weight, right? And like you've mm-hmm. you talked about being angry and maybe you well, probably can never fully make peace with what happens. Let well, me just real, real quick because I want to get a little more right. just I, I here's what I would say to our listeners are like, that's a heavy story to unpack, right? Uh-huh. Look, it doesn't take a lot to go on the internet, put John's name in. And do some read the articles that have been written, right? right? With Medal of Honor, SEAL Team Six rewards a culture of war crimes. I mean, just like you can oh, read yeah. Washington Post, like that's the incept. In I haven't, quite frankly, to be honest with you, read a lot of it. But I'm saying, like, just those of you listening, take a pause. I have, <laughs> right? I know you have. I know Lori has. Yeah. If you can put names in, you can go out there and find and see what's available, and just you can dig in a little bit more if you want to. But it's just it's tough, right? Because we often talk about these stories of leave no man behind. I mean, ultimately. We got him, right? They go get him. They don't just leave him there forever, right? So what happens on the tail end of some of this as what is a, a shit show of a scenario? And I'm not I'm not trying to trivialize it by saying that. I hope you don't take no, it. No, I no, I get it. It was a shit show. Um, but it was a self-inflicted shit show, self-inflicted by the SEAL team itself and by the leadership that was there in Bagram. Samansky. Mm. Um but I think we, I, the most infuriating stuff that I learned was when my co-author, Dan, Dan Schilling was a, also a combat controller. He was in the Somalia um, Mogadishu thing, um, which I'm also not trivializing by calling it a thing, but. Um, sure. I get you. We got you. So he, he was able to uncover way more than I ever would have on my own. Um and a lot of the things that were were coming out were just, I thought I was doing okay at that point in time with all of this. And then once I kept learning even a little bit more and a little bit more, and then all this crap started happening with the Medal of Honor stuff, I just got way, I, I just realized that maybe I'm not so good after all with all mm. of this. And um, yeah, so it was really delving into the book that, you know, I think it's, as truthful of what really happened as we can be. I mean, we weren't there, um, but piecing together with the talking to people who were there and seeing the video and, you know, it's, I'd say the most accurate version, you know, some people have said that John was never shot and never went down initially that he was, that it was part of the training where the person who's in front goes and stays and waits until everybody else, you know, gets there. And so he was waiting, but they never came, you mm-hmm. know, no, no. But so, I mean, that's somebody else's theory. And I mean, I could see that. I could see that happening, but. Um, yeah. So my husband and I afterwards, you know, I was reading, I, I started researching other Medal of Honor um, citations from World War II, from Vietnam, from wherever, you know. John was the first Air Force Medal of Honor recipient in nearly 50 years, worth noting. So, yep. Yep. So I started researching it, and and this was probably at year 10, 11, after his death, and or maybe even sooner. And um, I was saying, and my husband, just so you know, my husband was um, the first sergeant of the 2-4 when John was killed. So... Wow. There's that connection. I didn't meet him until after John was killed. Wow. Um, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so he was part of the uh, notification team. He and the commander and another guy and the chaplain went to notify John's widow. But um, so I said to Kenny, there's, there's something I was reading the, I said, okay, what John did is less than what some of these citations read, but is way more than what some of these other citations read. And I'm like, he, he earned the medal of honor. He actually earned two. Um, but um, you can only get one. So we tried, we wrote to people, we, um, we tried two or three different ways and they, it was immediately shut down. Like we were like, okay, now we know there's really something going on. Yeah. Here. So the details of the story. Yeah. 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 You know, ultimately, and, and, and I want to say this um, before I say what I have to say that when I talk about the seals in this mission, in this team, that's the only, they're all, I'm, I'm talking about them. When I say, you know, I think they are, they don't have integrity. I'm not talking about the seals in general. I'm not talking about seals now. I just want people to know that I'm not like completely anti-seal. I'm just this team to me, including the, excuse me, the commander, the Szymanski, that there's just no integrity there. Because um, when they started, so the Medal of Honor thing started happening. We got shut down every time. Then in around 2015, I think, then Secretary of the Air Force, um, Deborah James, was reading an article in the Air Force Times that was saying, asking, what does it take for uh, the Air Force to award a Medal of Honor? And she was like, huh, that's a good question. So she tasked um, some of her people to look into it and decided, you know, hey, get a get a list of, you know, eight, ten um, Air Force crosses that maybe they should have been upgraded. Maybe they should have been medals of honor to begin with. And John's name was, you know, towards the top of that list. And um, unbeknownst to her, there was another group of um, people in the Pentagon also thinking the same thing. Like, are there people who should have been medal of honor um, recipients? So that got that ball rolling and they kind of weeded it down, whittled it down to John's name only. And from what I understand, you cannot get an upgrade to Medal of Honor without new information. Well, there was new information for John's because they, the drone video that had, that everyone had watched in the, initially was a CIA drone. Well, there had been an AC-130 above it taking video also. So they, this Air Force got a team together and they were able to stitch those two videos together to the point of this is the one that you can see on YouTube. Um, where everybody has a, an electronic tag. So you can see who goes where, who does what, and who doesn't do the things that they said they did. And so that became the new information to support John's Medal of Honor. It's basically, I don't know if it's the first, but it's being claimed as mm. the first Medal of Honor with video proof. I don't even know that you can really make peace with it. I was going to ask, how do you make peace with it? I don't know that, I don't know that you have to, really. I guess I that's still a personal get angry. thing. Yeah. I still get angry about it. Um, and I knew that after doing this book that I, I kind of needed some kind of outside help. I, mm -hmm. I, I had made an appointment with our pastor and then Kenny got sick with COVID. So I didn't go to it and, and I never made another one. And I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And out of the blue, 
And like I had gone to bed, literally, I'd gone to bed that one night and cried, just cried. Like, how can I get through this? I don't know how I'm going to ever move past this. And the very next day, Eric called me. And he asked me how, he's like, it's going to be a weird question, but how is your soul? And I'm like, and he's like, I feel like I can tell, you know, that you're, you're struggling with something like he just, I don't know, I'm maybe in some of the things, the conversations we've had, I don't know. But when he called me, it was almost like a, holy crap, Mm. like maybe I can get through this. And I took him up on, um, on his help with, uh, through his foundation, the first there. And that is how his help allowed me to, I don't know. I was able to just push it all away, like take all of the hatred and all of the desire for revenge and all of the, the, um, pain. I mean, I still, I still get pain. You know, it still hurts me that I've lost my brother and I seriously feel like I almost that the the efforts to deny him the Medal of Honor almost hurt more, but because that was yeah. intentional. Yeah, that I was understand. Like, yeah, I can understand that. But through the help of um of Eric and his foundation and and um, his his team, I feel so much better now. I feel lighter. Um, you know. I'm sure there will be days that it'll be like, I never, I when never some got guy You haven't met, asked you to tell the story again. And, yeah. And yeah right? like, I don't know if I can do this, but yeah. yeah. So if it wasn't for Eric, I would still be, if, if I was talking with you now and I hadn't gotten help through the first there, um, this, it, this would have been so much different and so much darker. I mean, not that it wasn't, you know, just the story itself, but yeah. My, I would have been like, you know, making sure I added in all these extra things that I know that, um, you know, now, like you said, people can just look up their names and, you know, you, you decide. Yeah. Which we encourage you guys to do. Um, Lori, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the candor and the, the willingness to, to go in and unpack it some for us. It's a tough, this is a tough one to listen to guys. Um, but in there, not to be forgotten, is a man who volunteered, raised his hand, volunteered, jumped out of the bird to do what was right, protected people that wore that American flag on their uniform, no matter what, till the very end, uh, was ultimately honored with the highest honor that our nation can bestow upon him, rightfully so, and the family that carries that weight with them for years to come, and an amazing group of people and organization in first there that puts their arms around this family and helps them say it's going to be okay. That's pretty incredible. So if anything, you listen to this and you say that all is an amazing story. And now let me go to firstthere.org and help these guys out. I mean, seriously, that's what I'm asking you to do, right? If anything you take from this, go to firstthere.org and help them out because Lori's family has been aided in a way that only I'm telling you only in a way that that combat controller community can help each other out. Cause I don't know that that could be duplicated anywhere else. Mm-hmm. That's how I kind of feel about it, just from listening to it. They're a special group of guys. Yeah. Really, I mean, their families, their, them, the retired guys, the old guy. I love listening, talking friends with the, the older guys um, and just hearing their stories. 
it's incredible what they set up for the guys now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Lori's book is Alone at Dawn, New York Times bestseller. Alone at Dawn, Medal of Honor recipient John Chapman in the untold story of the world's deadliest special operations force. You also talk a lot about what special operators are, right? Yep. What he did to get there. So there's a lot of yeah. things in there too that you guys read. You're going to get the story of what happened to him on that day, but also just you can also dig in more into this community and uh, and show him some love that way. Lori, I don't take for granted what it means for you to join us and talk through it today. Thank so you for that. Thanks I really don't. so much for having me. Anytime. Allowing me to tell John's story. That's right. That's exactly right. That's your hero. That's our hero on this episode of Pick Up Six Podcast. His name was John Chapman. Her name is Lori Longfritz, and I'm Brian Jodis. That's been this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>